Welcome to the Genealogy Gems Podcast. It's a show filled with family history research strategies and techniques, news and entertainment, and inspiration. And I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Hello and welcome to Genealogy Gems Podcast episode number 139. Brought to you by two times grandma, Lisa Louise Cook. Yes, indeed. My second little grandson was born on August 15th of 2012. Uh, he's about two and a half weeks early, and he and his mommy, my daughter Vienna, are doing marvelously. Uh, his name is Joseph, and we're going to be calling him Joey, which I think is absolutely adorable. And even better is his middle name, Cook. Joseph Cook. Now, if you've been listening to the podcast since the early days, you may recall a little story that I have told you about why Bill and I stopped after having three daughters. And the reason is that his uncle had seven daughters <laughs> trying to have a boy. Girls are lovely and we are absolutely perfectly content. But with the odds stacked up against us, it seemed pretty prudent to wait for grandsons. So we are very, very fortunate to have our little two little grandsons now. And really, this is kind of the end of the line for the, the cooks, at least in our branch of the family tree, uh, for the cook surname, because Bill's brother didn't have any children. So it has really been kind of extra special to have the cook surname tucked into Joey's name. And it's been interesting, you know, to watch my two and a half year old grandson, Davey, adapting to his family getting larger. He's pretty low key. And he hasn't said a lot about it, but Vienna told me a cute little story. They were in the car the other day, and Joey um, started to kind of give a little fuss, and she could hear Davy in the back seat quietly saying, it's okay, Joey. So she turned around to see how he and, uh, was doing, and Davy looked up and said, no, Mommy, turn around. <laughs> and uh, when she did, he went back to quietly cooing to him, you're okay, Joey, we're almost there. So uh, it looks like he is primed and ready to be a really good big brother. So life is good. And being a shasha, as Davey calls me, is absolutely heaven on earth. That's for sure. Now, while our family is growing, things just have gotten a little bit quieter at our house because our youngest daughter, Hannah, has flown back to university. She's ready to take on her senior year. I cannot believe it's already her senior year of college. Uh, and it's her final year of playing college softball. It was so great to have her home, at least for a little while. But she was really sad because she was really worried that once again, she was going to miss the birth of a nephew because she had to go back to school uh, on the 16th. And Vienna was due on the 31st. Well, Joey appeared to be very understanding and accommodating because he arrived on her last day home on the 15th. So Hannah got to cuddle him and welcome him properly uh, into the family before she had to fly back to school. So she was one happy camper. And speaking of going back to school, we could all use a little continuing education. And let us not forget incorporating a bit of family history education into the lives of the precious little ones in our families. And I am really excited to tell you about a brand new resource that I predict is going to uh, bust your research wide open. That will be coming up shortly. We're going to be talking about continuing education and family history. But first, I want to talk about what's going on in the world of genealogy. First up in the genealogy news, this month, Ancestry announced 
that it has completed record indexing of the 1940 U.S. federal census. So you can find that at Ancestry.com slash 1940 census. And since the initial release of the 1940 U.S. census by the National Archives in April, they have been progressively publishing information state by state. But now, no longer are you going to have to look up enumeration districts or wait to see if, you know, they have your state. They're all there. All 134 million records are now searchable for free. Um, you can do it by name, date, place of birth, and other key information, of course, that's recorded in the census. You'll also be able to make corrections or updates to information that might be incomplete in the records they have there. And hopefully, you know, the goal is that's, I think, going to lead to an overall better database of information. And it's always nice how the community helps each other in terms of making those corrections and assisting you over at Ancestry with navigating the 1940 census is their interactive image viewer. Uh, which is supposed to enable users to browse documents with simple graphic overlays. The viewer adds highlights, transcriptions, and other functionality directly on the census page. So that enables users to access small census fields by scrolling over them and then getting the pop-up that kind of magnifies the information that was recorded by the census takers. In the 1940 census, you're also going to find information on whether your ancestor owned or rented a home, uh, the value of the residence, and how many people live there. But for the first time, census takers in 1940 also asked questions specific to income and education. But you may be surprised at what you're not going to find, like details on military service or whether they could read or write, which had been asked in the past, and whether they spoke English. These were all questions that were asked in prior censuses, but they're not included in the 1940 census. So you will find the 1940 census in its entirety at Ancestry.com slash 1940 census. And of course, FamilySearch also has indexed the 1940 census with the help of more than 160,000 of you volunteers, and they are launching a new volunteer project right on the heels of it. Boy, they don't rest for a second, do they? (laughs) They are turning their attention to the U.S. Immigration and Naturalization Community Project, an indexing effort to make passenger lists, naturalization records, and other immigration-related records freely searchable online. So hundreds of thousands of North American volunteers are expected to contribute over the next 18 to 24 months, focusing initially on passenger lists from the major U.S. ports. So if you or your genealogy society want to pitch in, you can visit familysearch.org slash immigration. There you're going to find all the details. And uh, you can read all about it over at the Genealogy Gems blog. I will have a link in the show notes to my article with all the details there and the links to Family Search. You know, going back to thinking about Ancestry for a second, you probably have heard that Ancestry.com has been looking for a buyer. But interestingly, Reuters uh, was just reporting this last week that the bids submitted earlier this month in August of 2012 by private equity firms for Ancestry.com, they have fallen short of the company's expectations, according to two people that are supposed to be familiar with the with what's going on there. Buyout firms, including Permira Advisors, LLP, and TPG Capital LP, are now considering whether they are going to actually increase their offers. 
there were other private equity houses, including Providence Equity Partners, that have actually already pulled out of the bidding altogether. And Bloomberg News, I was just over at their website, they cited one source as saying that Ancestry.com had rejected a bid of $35 a share. But this stock closed at $30.24 a share right after that report, which was giving the company a total market value of $1.3 billion. So a little bit of discrepancy there on um, the bid share they're rejecting, but the actual current value. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens, whether they pull back and just keep going themselves or whether they push forward to try to, to get a buyer. So we'll keep our eyes on that. Now, in my last premium podcast, we just uh, published, I think it was episode 90, I mentioned Chronicling America and their historic American newspaper project. It's at chroniclingamerica.loc.gov. We've talked about it before on the show here. They have sent out a newsletter and they were talking about Civil War maps that were printed in the New York Daily Tribune. So here, um, I want to share with you from the Chronicling America website, they were talking about these maps in the New York's Daily Tribune and saying that uh, reports were that as hostilities progressed, people on both sides of the burgeoning Civil War sought to make sense of what was taking place in their country. And the press rushed to publish stories and accounts of the battles. But perhaps the most telling feature were the maps that they published. The New York Tribune published graphical accounts of the Battle of Bull Run, the Battle of Gettysburg, and more. So, of course, I had to check this out when I got this newsletter, and uh, they have links here to some incredible maps. Who would have thought of old newspapers as being a source for old maps, and particularly uh, military battles that perhaps some of your ancestors may have fought in? So uh, again, I talked about this on the genealogy news blog. I'll have a link for you in the show notes and a link to take you right over to Chronicling America to uh, check out those maps in newspapers. We gotta love newspapers. And finally, here's something kind of fun. I was looking at George Mason University's history news website. If you have teenagers in your family, then chances are, of course, you've heard the phrase OMG, which stands for, oh my God or, uh, oh my gosh, in some families. <laughs> but, you know, that OMG, you know, people, te- the texting that goes on, they, they abbreviate everything. But have you ever wondered who started that? You might have thought it was, you know, Alicia Silverstone in the 1995 movie Clueless, who was like the total valley girl, and she was like, OMG. But actually, you have to dig much further back, according to this History News Network website, to uh, really find the origins of OMG. In fact, you have to go all the way back to 1917. So the site says that the folks at the Oxford English Dictionary discovered a use of OMG from 1917. A little pretexting, I would say. (laughs) It comes in a letter, texting of a type, right? Way back when. It was in a letter by British Admiral John Jackie Fisher, who wrote, and I quote, I hear that a new order of knighthood is on the tapas. OMG, in parentheses, oh my God, shower it on the admiralty. The letter was published in his book. It was called Memories. It was published back in 1919. And according to the website, Fisher was famous for being the driving force behind the creation of the HMS Dreadnought. 
an advanced capital ship, which when it was launched in 1906 seemed revolutionary. This, the World Navies agreed, made all other capital ships obsolete, but distressingly to the British, destroyed their long-standing lead in naval power. If temporarily, the result was an enormously expensive Anglo-German naval race, which did much to bring on World War I. So you got to head to the show notes to see this. Um, I've got the Admiral's OMG exclamation for you in print. Um, of course, to find the show notes, you go to genealogygems.com, click podcast episode in the menu and follow the links to episode 139. And Genealogy Gems podcast app users, you will also find a downloadable PDF of the show notes in the app, which comes with each episode. So you can take it with you and read it in your favorite e-reader. Uh, you can get the app in the iTunes store, or you can get the Android app through the Amazon links on our website. Um, but now you uh, know the origins of OMG. So next time the kids are te- texting, you can say, oh, that's right out of history. That's 1917. Let me tell you. <laughs> kind of cute kind of fun. You know, it's, it's funny, we we think of things as being so modern day, but what they say, everything old is new again. Hmm, I think that's the case. Well, now that you are well educated, as to the current genealogy news and the origin of some of the uh, abbreviations used in texting, let's find out what some of your questions are. And we're going to do that in the mailbox. From my old hometown One with some jokes From my old pal Jim Brown Bring me a letter From that girl of mine Saying that he's longing for me All the time Bring me a letter From my proud old dad we are winning, and I bet he's glad of more than any other a line from my old mother. Bring me a letter from my hometown. Okay, gosh, I have so many um, emails here in the mailbox. Want to get to several of them. We've got one from Amy in Santa Rosa, California. She posted the following question actually on the Genealogy Gems Facebook fan page. I hope you're a fan. If you are on Facebook, you got to type in that uh, search box, Genealogy Gems Podcast, and you will find our Facebook page. You can actually listen to the show from there too, as well. So when you're out chatting with all your friends, you could be listening to the show in the background. Amy writes... On your podcast, I hear you recommend Roots Magic for genealogy software, but I have a Mac, and as far as I can tell, it only works with PCs. I thought at one point that you mentioned that you were starting to use a Mac, so I'm wondering if you use different software on the Mac or if you use a PC for your genealogy software. I used to use Family Tree Maker before my PC crashed. Oh, I'm so sorry, Amy. (laughs) It's just a nightmare when your PC crashes but thought I'd do some research before buying software for the new Mac. Just thought I'd get your opinion since I value your expertise on the podcast. 
it is probably just as well that my PC crashed, she says, because I never did any source citations. Didn't know about it when I started genealogy, and now it just scares me. So I'll be learning how to do that as well um, as I add names back in. Well, Amy, you've been through a lot. Gosh, losing your PC. I hope you had it backed up. Um, I, I back up mine, and oh, what a lifesaver. And oh, source citations, you got to do those. Got to keep you, you know, want to learn about more about source citations. I think we've covered that in depth in the Family History Podcast. There's some great books out there, lots of resources. Um, but let's talk about your first question. Well, I do use both a Mac and a PC. I only do my genealogy on my PC, actually, which is what I prefer. I really got the Mac more for video editing and audio and that kind of thing. Um, I did publish a series of segments on comparing genealogy software programs for the Mac. We published those a couple of years ago. It starts with about Genealogy Gems podcast, episode number 51. Ben Sayer did those as a guest podcaster, if you will, here on the show. So go to genealogygems.com, click podcast episodes in the menu, and then you're looking for starting with episode 51. And in each episode for a couple in a row, Ben did a great little job of giving us that comparison of, of Mac genealogy software programs. Let's see. Oh, Amy has one more question here. She says, my paternal grandfather that I grew up knowing, and he's listed on my dad's birth certificate, is not his biological father. My dad and I know who his biological father is. Unfortunately, he passed away about two months before we found out. Oh, gosh. I'm sorry to hear that. But we know next to nothing about him. His parents came from Russia, Poland, just a bit before he was born. And this was always a taboo subject while my grandma was alive because Joseph, my dad's biological father, was the love of her life. Met while my grandpa was away at war and she thought he had died. She had to leave Joseph while she was pregnant. Her marriage to him was not real as she thought since her real husband was alive. Gosh, it sounds like a movie. Uh, she says it was a big mess and my dad didn't know of any of it until he was 18 years old. My dad looked nothing like his other three siblings and apparently just like his father. My dad has seen only one photo of his father ever, and we don't know what happened to it. Do I include the grandpa that I grew up knowing on my family tree or the biological grandfather? I'm inclined to include the biological one that feels right. How do others in this situation do it? Wouldn't it be bloodlines, not fake lines, as she says in uh, quotation marks? My father really wants to know about his biological father, whom sadly never knew he existed. He died in a VA hospital. Would that be a good place to contact for information? I have his birth and death certificates and his mother's death certificate. The only people I know anything at all about in that family are my biological grandfather and his parents. Okay, well, in regards to the question about trying to learn more about him, I'm afraid you may not have much luck with the VA hospital. Uh, hospitals are notorious for closed records. Although, in my interview with author Steve Luxenberg, uh, he talked in episodes, I think it was 121, 122, about how he worked around some of those challenges in his own family history. So not to say it's impossible, but just understand that there are going to be some challenges in terms of privacy with uh, his hospital records. What I would recommend is to stick with the good tried and true genealogical methods to find out more about him. Uh, just because there's something kind of odd in there doesn't mean you don't want to still follow those good basic research principles. So start with his death, 
move your way backward. Make sure you're getting good sources, primary, secondary, that you're citing those sources to and keeping track of, of where they're coming from. And when you find discrepancies, that's going to be a big help. I would look for a newspaper obituary, of course, census records, uh, if he was alive prior to 1940, generalancestry.com searches. You may be amazed what you find there. And of course, the potential military records as well. As for your family tree in your database, adoptive parents are really just like step parents, which are also included in your family tree. And they can, and I really think that they should be included if at all possible. I did a quick Google search on adding adoptive parents to Roots Magic, and I got a result in the Roots Magic forum. It was a great one explaining how many users have accomplished um, that inclusion of the various parents, and I'll have a link for you to that in the show notes. It's perfectly okay to have two sets of parents because that was the reality of the situation. And that's really what you're trying to to show. I mean, there's a lot of different ways we parent. And although you definitely would want the biological lines, how could we possibly really understand an ancestor if we don't know those who were truly raising them and um, shaping their character? And that would be whether they were step parents, adoptive parents, whatever the situation is. So it only seems right that as adoptive parents do the actual parenting that uh, you just couldn't imagine leaving them out. So feel free to go ahead and put them in. I know that Roots Magic offers information about how to add a step parent, show an adoption, that type of thing. And I'm sure other programs do as well. I hope that helps. Good luck. And thank you so much for listening to the podcast. And Brant has a couple of questions too. Now, the first one here is about place names. He says, I have a question for you. I'm going through some of my records. I've come across a few where the records were created here in the States, but name places back in Europe or elsewhere. And the place names are often spelled phonetically. And sometimes I can't figure out what they are trying to say, even with a Google search. Do you have any tips on figuring out how to find misspelled foreign place names? My first suggestion is gazetteers. They are always a great resource. But when I'm really stuck, and I often am, <laughs> surprisingly so with some of the place names that I've had, you know, scratched on the back of envelopes and that type of thing, really, I think that turning to Google is a good way to go. You can type the location name, just do it to the best of your knowledge, type it out phonetically if need be and run a search. And Google really does do a great job of suggesting the closest matches to names that it can find. It's even better if you can include an additional keyword or two to help Google narrow it down. So if the place name is a village in Germany, type the village name in, even if you know that it's not spelled correctly, and then add the word Germany. Narrow it down for Google. If you have a surname associated with it, you could even try adding that as perhaps there might be a lot of people there still today in that location with that surname. And that's going to up the chances that the correct spelling is going to pop up. And with a few tries, you might just get the answer. And I would consider running that search also in Google Earth since it's very geographic in nature. I'm amazed how many times I will 
incorrectly type in the name of a place and it will say, okay, well, do you want this? Do you want this? Do you want this? And it gives me the closest, best choices. And if I add, you know, the country like Germany, it's really going to narrow it down. You've got that power of that Google search engine in Google Earth. Why not do the search within a geographic program so that you can really plot it out and see what makes sense? Sometimes just seeing the location, you'll think, oh, well, you know, that could not be it because I know that's way too far away from where I was looking. And it helps you put those options of results in a geographic reference. Turn to Google Earth for that. Ricky in Alabama has two questions. He says, I'm still working my way through your Genealogy Gems podcast. One thing I'm curious about, I have gone to a library and I found obituaries on microfilm. I print the film then I scan it when I got home. So it saves as a JPEG file. When I save it to my database, Family Tree Maker right now, but I just got Roots Magic 5, it saves just like a photograph. Should I create a Word document and insert the image, making it a document? Same thing for death certificates that I've saved from microfilm. Well, Ricky, I just save them as JPEG files, which is a compressed photographic image, and I make a note in the source citation in Roots Magic. So there's no point in creating extra work. If you want more detail attached to the image, what I would consider is going into the computer file itself and adding data into the properties of the image. So I'm on a PC. Uh, if I open Windows Explorer and I locate the image on my hard drive that I saved, if I right click it on the image, select properties, and then click the details tab. And there you're going to find all kinds of fields that you can add keyword tags and other details about the image. And I think that is a really good practice for anybody who is scanning images, wanting to attach them to the database, wanting to make sure that, you know, years from now, it's going to make sense why that photo is attached to the, the tree. To keep JPEGs and other files organized and coordinated with your genealogy database, you might also check out the Hard Drive Organization video series. It's part of the Genealogy Gems Premium Membership. It's an expanded two-video series on the system that I use and the one that I actually developed for organizing my personal hard drive and having it coordinate with my genealogy software program and how I keep things all organized. Haven't lost a thing yet. <laughs> it works really well. He had the second question. He says, I was listening to an older Genealogy Gems podcast episode recently. Uh, he says, I'm a newbie. I'm trying to get caught up. And I heard mention of the website Random Act of Genealogical Kindness. I did a search today for that site and I saw that it was offline and where the administrator had passed away in November of 2011. I also saw something where her husband said it might be back online soon. My question is, is the site back online? If not, uh, are there sites that are similar to it? I didn't see anything with my research, but I didn't search too hard. <laughs> I have a couple of needs for cities far away, and I would love to help anyone out with information that they may need here in Alabama. Well, Ricky, as far as I know, there has been no relaunch of the Random Acts of Genealogical Kindness website, and no websites that I've really seen have sur surfaced as a firm replacement for it. But you know, with social networking sites that are so abundant now, my first stop would be Facebook. There are so many genealogists on Facebook, and 
if you get out there and befriend genealogists, you'll find that Facebook will actually suggest other genealogists to you. Then you can put out a request when you're looking for help. Because really, everybody out there is, is interested in the same thing. Uh, you can search for friends by location. And you can also make an offer. Put it on your wall. Hey, this is where I'm at. I'm in Alabama. Be happy to help. Here's what I know about. And if anybody wants to get in touch with me, do so. And I think really, the web has evolved so much that in many ways, um, the social networking sites have really kind of helped fill that void. Now, if you're not active on Facebook, I would recommend going to the U.S. Gen Web Project. It's usgenweb.org. And then click on the state and then the county and go to the county website of the place where you need help. Many county websites have lookup help offers and people that are resources in that area. There's usually ways to connect them, and that would be a great way to, to get in touch with them. And of course, if you're looking for help with obtaining a photograph of a grave, you always try find a grave, billion graves. Lots of them are popping up out there, you know, lots of uh, different types of resources. So thankfully, that Web 2.0 and all the social networking, uh, there are lots of options, I think, that could really meet your needs. It's here, the new version 5 of the award-winning RootsMagic genealogy software. It makes researching, organizing, and sharing your family history easier and more enjoyable than ever. If you're looking to take the next step in your family history research and start recording your family tree in your own genealogy database, or if you've really been wanting to make a switch to a much more user-friendly program, then do what I did. I chose RootsMagic, and I'm really glad that I did. Throughout its 10-year history, RootsMagic has helped people research and share their family trees with innovative features like uh, moving people from one file to another with your mouse, a source wizard to help you document your work, creating a shareable CD to give to family and friends, and running RootsMagic off of a USB flash drive when you're away from home. RootsMagic also received the award for easiest to sync from FamilySearch for their work in interfacing with that system. Really, what are you waiting for? Download your risk-free trial of RootsMagic 5 at RootsMagic.com. See why professionals and beginners alike choose RootsMagic at RootsMagic.com. Nothing to do, 
Let's take a trip on memory ship Back to the bygone days Sail to the old village school house Anchor outside the school door Look in and see There's you and there's me A couple of kids once more School days, school days Dear old golden rule days Reading and writing and arithmetic Talk to the tune of a hickory stick You were my queen Yes indeed, this is the time of year when everybody's heading back to school And it's a good reminder that not only could we benefit from continuing to pursue our own genealogical education, but in an effort to foster an appreciation for our family history and ensure its survival, we really need to be educating the children in our families about family history, what it means, why it matters, and even how to learn more about it on their own. Now, this applies to parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles. We all have young people in our lives who we could help inspire to value their family's history. Now, I know it's not as easy as it sounds, but I do have a couple of gems for you to help you accomplish this. Earlier this year, I was at the uh, National Genealogical Society conference that was being held in Cincinnati, Ohio. And a young mom approached me and told me that she had just published some books on how to teach your children about genealogy. Her name is Jennifer Hollick, and this wasn't just a book, but rather an entire curriculum. So we found a little out-of-the-way corner at the convention center, and she told me all about it. Well, if you're like many genealogists, you may have kids in your family, and those kids may not be fully aware of either what you're doing or very interested in what you're doing, and yet you're passionate about it, and this is all, you know, uh, benefiting the entire family, so what to do? I've got Jennifer Hollick here. We're at the NGS National Conference, and she has a couple of tools that she proposes may help us out in our endeavors to bring in the next generation into the world of family history. Welcome, Jennifer. Hello. What we have here is a stack of books. Of course, none of you can see this, but I get the benefit of looking at this, but we'll have some links for you online. I see here what really is starting to look like a full curriculum. Tell us what you've developed. I developed a set of 30 lessons for first through third graders, fourth through eighth graders, high school, and now adults as of this week that take you through the basics of getting started all the way through the major record groups. It is not a comprehensive, this is the end-all be-all to genealogy research. It is a very basic beginning. But that's where most of these folks are going to be, where the kids will be uh, at the various stages in their life and where some adults are. And yet, um, just looking at the cover, it just looks very approachable. Is that what you were kind of shooting for? Yes. My cousin is a graphics designer, and she said if she were going to buy a textbook, she would buy something like this that's very vibrant and colorful and with today's color schemes that are very popular, a lot of the browns. 
So walk us through a little bit, particularly because I know some folks, they homeschool, and I could see this as being really applicable for that. Um, could be just wonderful for family nights um, and, and going through these lessons together. Are, are these independent study? Do we need to sit down with our kids for some scheduled time and, and go through them? Is it How interactive is it? Tell us what the goodies are inside. Well, initially, they were designed for homeschool families. My editor, Stephanie Pitcher-Fishman, is a homeschool mom, and she had said to me in December, you know, you have this great kids blog. It, it has very short lessons about how to start research written directly to the child. And she said, you should really package this as curriculum because there's not much out there in the homeschool community. So we started that, but then it branched out into this larger project where we are planning now to also hit the schools and the genealogy societies and the libraries and not just public schools, but private schools, homeschool co-ops and so on. The first through third grade and fourth through eighth grade lessons are written to the parent or the teacher, and they should read the material and then help direct the student in the activity. So each lesson has a goal, vocabulary, a reading assignment, a lesson, and then an activity. And some in the fourth grade and then the high school curriculum also have a make it personal section where they have to sit down and write something, make it a little more personal, add some social history, talk to a grandparent, and add that information. The high school book is written to the student so they can use it as a self-study. They don't necessarily need the parent except for a couple of the assignments that require a field trip to the library. Then they need that parent to go with them and, and do that. The adult book is written specifically to the adults. It has a couple different lessons than the children's versions. It has one on um, social media, ephemera, more on taking care of your papers and organizing. It takes it to a higher level, but it's all still very basic so that anybody can pick it up and start using it. What prompted you? I can see that this is a lot of work had to have gone into a series like this. Um, what you got? What got you interested in, in putting this together? Well, I have three children of my own. I have six-year-old twins and an eleven-year-old, and they are all mostly interested in genealogy. It, it comes in spurts, but they're very interested in their military ancestors. And I had actually written a book about my cousin who was a flying tiger and published that, and I thought, well, I want to write a children's book, but I didn't know what angle to take. But when Stephanie suggested I put it into curriculum, I thought that was the way to go. And after I attended the FGS conference last September, the genealogy societies were talking about engaging the younger generation, and how can we do that, and what can we do? And so one of the books is Engaging the Next Generation, which is a guide for genealogy societies and libraries. And that's actually a two-part book. The first part has suggested outlines, suggested speaking text, suggested projects, so you know exactly where to start, how, then you can tweak it any way you want, and build your program from there. The second part of the book has the entire 4th through 8th grade 30 lesson curriculum, so if the society or the library wanted to take it to the next level, beyond the basic class, they could certainly do so. You know, I, I think some parents might look at this and they say, oh, I'm not sure if I'm equipped to, to go through this. My own kids have talked about the possibility of what if they would homeschool their children and that type of thing. Even if somebody wasn't a homeschooling parent, uh, what advice would you give them in terms of using a book like this and, and feeling like this is something they could do? 
The book is written, as I said, it's very basic, so anybody can understand it. There's limited vocabulary in each lesson. Everything is spelled out. The lessons themselves are written step one, step two, or they give a little background information depending on the topic, like the census. How did the census begin? What are the kinds of records that you can find? Um, What information is in those records? And it's all explained very simply so that anybody can pick it up and run with it. Exactly. Now, you have children of your own. Have you put them through the paces? And and what's been your personal experience in using this? Well, the books just came out at the end of March, and here we are in the middle of May. So they have taken the proof copies of the book, and they've done the word searches and the crossword puzzles, because that's what they're interested in right now. They like to hear the stories, and that's what engages them. And then they'll go off and draw a picture of their World War I cousin and his airplane or whatever. And so that's where we are with them right now. Well, and that brings to mind, you know, the idea of it's uh, a challenge because you're talking about different age levels and um, experience levels and interest levels. What kind of background research did you have to do to determine, you know, what would excite them? Which pages are they going to gravitate to so that you know kind of what exercises to put in there? Well, I kind of went by what my kids like, and then Stephanie is a homeschool mom. Her daughter is in high school, so she provided some of that um, direction. But kids like stuff that's fun, stuff that's short, that will grab their attention. They can do it. They can see that it's they've accomplished something, and then they can move on to the next thing, which is why I have crossword puzzles and word searches, short exercises. They go online and have to look for a record. And by the end of it, they've done something. They have something concrete, and then they can take that and build on to the next level. That's great. Well, it seems like a really interesting concept because it's one thing to to do a couple of exercises with a child, but here you've kind of given us something that we can continue on because don't you find that the children, the the interest comes and goes, well, certainly with all of us, doesn't it? And um, is this the kind of thing where we could do it for a while and then their their attention goes another direction and we could pick it back up in six months when they go, what about that? Let's do that again. You absolutely could because the books all start with the basics, how to fill out a pedigree chart, how to fill out a family group sheet. It talks about interviewing. It talks about some sources and where you can find the information in your house or in a library. And then it moves to the record sources. So you could very well go through the very beginning and then the first record set that is discussed is census. And then you could stop there and you could spend as long as you want looking for census records or stop completely and then wait until their interest is picked back up with a story or a photograph and then continue the lessons. And they don't have to be done in order. If, If you go through the census and then your child decides that they want to know about the military ancestor, skip to the military lesson because they are not built so that you have to do the lesson before in order to do the next one. They're all individual. Well, and finally, what do you hope that people will walk away from this with in terms of what it does for their family? Um, is this a perhaps a bonding experience? What were you hoping to achieve by putting together you know, such a wonderful series? I'm hoping to engage the, the, the younger generation, the kids under 20, because so many genealogists are 50 and over and now there's a big push because of who do you think you are and other shows on tv to engage the kids but you have to start with something they're interested in start with a story start with a photograph 
and see where it goes from there. It'll, it will make them appreciate their past and appreciate their family and then what the family has gone through. Well, the series is called Branching Out. It's by Jennifer Hollick. I'll have lots of good information for you in the show notes so that you can take a look at this series. And uh, whether you're a parent or a grandparent, I imagine, or even an aunt or an uncle, um, this is a wonderful way to engage the kids in family history. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you. I really appreciated Jennifer's interest in fostering the next generation's interest in genealogy and If you'd like to learn more about her branching out curriculum, uh, be sure to head to the show notes for this episode. It's number 139, and I have all the information there for you. If you're not quite ready to jump into a curriculum, maybe you're just not sure that your kids are really going to get into genealogy or even be able to get interested, uh, you've got to go check out the Chart Chick blog. It's by my friend Janet Havorka. Now, Janet has been sharing her personal genealogy journey with her kids, and she calls it like it is. You're going to be inspired, entertained, and you're going to pick up some great gems along the way for working with kids on family history. Again, it's called the Chart Chick blog. You'll find it at the Chart Chick at blogspot.com. Janet's the chart chick because she is the owner of Family Chart Masters. And um, she really lives her business. And she's got three kids, all uh, early teens and teenage years. And boy, if anybody could get them interested in family history, it's Janet. (laughs) So you got to follow along with them. Um, It really is inspiring. And it will give you a sense of kind of what the pitfalls are. And she's got some really great ideas there for uh, getting the kids involved. And finally, what about your education? Actually, you're much further ahead than the average family historian because you've already made time to listen to this podcast, and hopefully you've picked up some nuggets along the way that have helped you out. But if you're looking for even more, I will be part of the upcoming Family Tree University Fall Virtual Conference, along with some other really terrific instructors. Now, I know that a conference usually requires time off and travel, and that's not always a possibility. However, a virtual conference, and that's what this is, is an online event, which you can attend from the comfort of your own home. Huh? Pretty good. If you haven't attended one before, the upcoming fall virtual conference, it's presented by Family Tree University, is going to be held September 14th through the 16th of 2012. It's really a great opportunity to get involved. It's your chance to head back to school this fall, gaining new research strategies, you know, brushing up on those proven genealogical research techniques that we all need to be following. And uh, I'm going to be there. Now, I've been an instructor um, since really the first virtual conference that they held a year or two ago. And this time I really am pretty jazzed because I'm going to be bringing you some of the best websites for finding historic maps. And as you know, I am very passionate about using Google Earth for genealogy and creating those historic map overlays is one of the techniques that I do teach in my Google Earth for Genealogy video series. It's available on CD. So I always have an eye out for those really great digitized historic maps that are available for free online. And let me tell you, there are hundreds of thousands of them online. I'm going to be sharing my favorite websites. Literally, I think we're talking hundreds of thousands of maps in total that just these sites we're going to talk about in class 
will be available to you. Uh, it's a half an hour video class. And, you know, that is really one of the things that makes the Family Tree Virtual Conference such a standout, I think, is that these classes are on video. So that means, you know, you can download them and watch them during the weekend, as well as getting involved in the uh, live chats that they're going to have. You can go visit their virtual exhibit halls, different web pages online to kind of go along with the idea of walking through an exhibit hall and seeing some great deals from uh, instructors and exhibitors. But, you know, life does get in the way. And if you don't have a chance to watch all the videos or to be available at a certain time, that's the beauty of it. You have downloaded the videos. They are yours to watch and keep on your computer. So sometimes, you know, you'll be looking, we may be looking at historic map websites and you're thinking, oh, this is great. But then six months from now, you're thinking, ah, now I need the ones from that particular website she was talking about. What was that? You can fire that up and go back and watch it again and walk along with me and uh, incorporate that into your research at the time that you need it. I think that's what's really cool about this. And in addition, like I said, you get to get involved in the live chats uh, with other genealogists from all, not only all over the country, there are really genealogists from around the world who join in on this um, event. And as a presenter, this is really cool. I have an opportunity to offer my listeners and readers a 20% savings on Family Tree University's uh, conference. They've given me a little special coupon code just for you guys. So here it is. You go to the show notes, click the link to get over to the Family Tree University website to register, and then you need to enter the coupon code Friends of Lisa Cook. There's no Louise in there. <laughs> it's all together Friends of Lisa Cook. You enter that in, you're going to get 20% right off the top of the registration. So um, that'll save you a little bit of money, and you're also going to be able to see. All the instructors, lots of names you recognize from the magazine, as well as uh, the wide range of topics that they're going to be covering. Some really great stuff. So um, that may be one way to incorporate a little bit of uh, going back to school for yourself, but on your schedule. Reading and writing and arithmetic. Talk to the tune of a hickory stick. You were my queen in Jericho. I was your badge for barefoot bow and the rope on my plate. I love you, Joe. When we were a couple of Profile America, Saturday, September 8th. Of the millions of students going to class in the new school year, many are attending junior high schools or middle schools. The first such school in the U.S. opened its doors this week in 1909. The Indianola Junction Junior High School in Columbus, Ohio, with 7th, 8th, and 9th grades. 9th grade students were offered courses in English, German, algebra, science, and geography as well as manual training, domestic science, history, and the government of Ohio. Today, most middle schools are composed of grades 6 to 8, some even 5 to 8, with a much broader curriculum. 
Across the nation, there are more than 3.5 million students in each of grades 6 to 8. You can find more facts about America from the U.S. Census Bureau online at census.gov. Well, thanks so much for joining me for Genealogy Gems podcast episode number 139. Now, as I promised at the top of the show, I have something very exciting to tell you about. It's a brand new resource that I predict is really going to bust your research wide open. But as I was putting this episode together and getting ready to tell you about this new genealogy gem, an email landed in my inbox that just reinforced that this is the perfect thing at the perfect time. Here's what Kelly wrote. She says, I just listened to premium episode number 90. And as I was listening, my FedEx man delivered my first iPad, which I am using right now. Kind of exciting. Other than they seem a lot of fun, one of my main rationalizing points for getting one is genealogy and genealogy gems. I have downloaded the Ancestry app, your genealogy gems app, and the Speakeasy app that you suggested in episode 90. Now I just have to figure them out. But hey, I'm typing an email. Questions. Can I see premium episodes through the app? I'm sure you've talked about it somewhere. Also, to go along with the Speakeasy app, are there a set of interview questions you find especially good to use? I find that people are a little resistant to things and questions I have tried. I'm excited for all the fun ahead with my new toy, but it will have to be patient. I, too, have wonderful grandchildren. Seven of my eight will be here this weekend. Baby number eight is only three weeks old, and I'm excited to hold and cuddle. Thanks for all the ideas, hard work, and positive attitude. When I get bogged down in my research, and sometimes with life, I turn on your podcast and I get new positive energy. And she says, excuse the typos. I don't know how to fix them without deleting. (laughs) Well, Kelly, thank you so much for your sweet and adorable email. Um, I am absolutely thrilled to tell you and everybody else listening that I have a brand new book. I think this is exactly what you're looking for. The timing is amazing. It's called Turn Your iPad into a Genealogy Powerhouse. And it is packed with answers to all your questions. You know, when I first started writing this book, someone said to me, but your audience is usually older, aren't they? They don't really use iPads, do they? But my experience is that really could not be farther from the truth. Um, I taught a class at the NGS conference this last year on genealogy on the go with the iPad, and it was a full room. And everywhere I went, I saw people using them. So this book is for everybody, regardless of age, because the world is going in a mobile direction. And that just dovetails perfectly into what we do, chasing down our ancestors. The book is 152 pages packed full of how to set it up, the best apps to use for genealogy, how to use them for a variety of genealogical projects. Um, There are video links to demos that you can watch online and tons and tons of tips and tricks that are truly going to make you a power user. And Kelly, I do have some excellent tips for you on correcting and speeding up typing on the iPad. So you will definitely want to check that out. Now, I know that what some of you are thinking, you're thinking, I don't have an iPad or I have an Android tablet and I don't have an iPad, well, don't worry because this book is still for you. If you haven't bought a tablet or an iPad yet, 
and you've been seeing your friends get them, you're, you're wondering what it's all about, you're wondering if it'd be really of any actual use to you, particularly in terms of genealogy. Well, the secret is out in this book. The answer is yes. Yes, it will. <laughs> I promise. But this book is going to help you gain confidence in what you're investing in. Go ahead and get it. Get familiar with it so that when you go to shop, you really can try things out and you can pick the one that's right for you. And while the book indeed is geared to the iPad, the approach to using it that I lay out for you really is the same regardless of what brand of tablet that you use. And I do offer up an alternative Android app that you'll find in the Google Play Store for all of the different iPad apps that I recommend. So I've got those alternatives there for you. And although the final chapters that are full of tips and tricks, the power using chapters are specifically written to the iPad, you're definitely going to benefit even if you have an Android tablet, because you're going to be able to see what can be done. And you can look for those equivalent functions on your tablet and in your instruction booklet. You guys are usually luckier because oftentimes the Android tablets come with more instructions than the iPad does, which is one of the reasons I kind of decided to focus on the iPad. Plus, it's just still so popular. But now let me answer Kelly's specific question. You asked about the Genealogy Gems app, and the official app in the App Store is strictly for the free podcast. Although it does include exclusive content like um, we've got special bonus videos and the PDF downloads of the show notes. However, in Genealogy Gems, I think it was premium episode number 89, a listener wrote in with some great suggestions for getting the premium show on your mobile device. So be sure and check that out. That was premium episode number 89. And by the way, you also asked about interview questions. And coincidentally, I am right now working on a new article for Family Tree Magazine on that topic. So stay tuned. And I will be announcing in the coming weeks when uh, that's going to be coming out, which issue you'll find it in. And we did cover interviewing skills and, and techniques in Genealogy Gems podcast episode 28, uh, which should also help you out. You know, we've spent the last 10 years really focusing on doing genealogy research from the comfort of our home and in our jammies. But may I suggest that with the iPad and the other tablet brands out there, as well as smartphones, that the future is really about getting out there and seeing and experiencing your family history in person, hitting the road and having your own sort of who do you think you are experience. You know, tablets are the perfect tool and they're lightweight. They're, it's not like lugging around a laptop. It's a whole nother experience and they're gloriously beautiful to look at. And technology is improving so rapidly that I really think that we're going to be blown away to see what we're going to be able to do on the road in even just five or 10 years. So now is the time to jump in, hit the road, really have your family history come to life. My hope truly is that this book and this podcast will be your trusted companions on that journey. I hope so. Again, the book is called Turn Your iPad into a Genealogy Powerhouse. It's now available for pre-order at the Genealogy Gems store. Go to genealogygems.com, click the store tab on the menu. You'll find it there at a very special price. The cover price is $18.95, but now for a limited time, as we're first launching it, and I'm just telling you guys first, you can get your copy for just $15 plus shipping. 
Um, the book is six inch by nine inch. It's the perfect size to tuck in the tablet sleeve right along with your tablet. And it's loaded with step-by-step instructions and lots of pictures that show you the way. And we are working on the ebook version that will be coming out very soon. Um, it may very possibly be available through the Lulu store, um, but that's still in the works. So we have the paperback book for you at the Genealogy Gem Store. And uh, when the ebook gets ready and is coming out, then we will let you know that as well. So that's what I've been doing with my summer vacation. I've been putting the finishing touches on this book that I've been working on for quite some time. I hope you've been enjoying your summer vacation and that you're going to hit the road more often to really experience your family history for yourself. I'm glad to be hitting the road with you. Thanks so much for listening, friend. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.